Let's open our Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 25 again, if you will. We've read the first nine verses of the materials of the tabernacle. First we had in the verse 1 and 2 the offering that they took up. Every man was to bring these particular materials. And then verses 3 through 5, or 3 through 7, we have the materials listed. And that's what you have on that little sheet of paper that I gave you. And then you come down to verse 9, and it tells Moses that he's to make everything. He says, according to all that I showed thee, show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. So God's blueprint, diagram, pattern was is what Moses, God gave Moses as he was up on the mount. Then we went through chapter 25 and 26 and 27 and showed you in our last lesson by way of introduction the different pieces of furniture. Uh, for some that were not here, I'll just point them out briefly. 25 verse 10, you have the ark. 25 verse 23, you have the table. And then verse 31, you have the candlestick. And then chapter 26, you have in verse uh, 1, the ten curtains of fine twine linen. 26 verse 7, you have curtains of goat's hair. And then in verse uh, 14, you have ram skins dyed red and badger skins. Then down in verse uh, 15, you have boards for the tabernacle. Verse 19, you have sockets of silver that the boards were set up in. And then verse 26, you have bars that were to hold the sides of the walls of the boards together. And in verse 31, you have a veil of blue and all the description of it. And in verse uh, 33, you have uh, the holy place and the most holy place described or mentioned. In verse 34, you have the mercy seat up on the ark of the testimony. That's really the lid or the covering. Then we got into chapter 27. We gave you in verse 1 the altar. That's a brazen altar you find out in the court. And if that, that little diagram of the tabernacle, you can find all these things located. And then you find on down uh, in verse uh, 9, the court of the tabernacle. In verse 16, you have the gate of the court. And uh, I believe that's all the things I gave you in those three chapters. But that was by way of introduction to all the various pieces of furniture that you find. Now then, before we get into the detailed study of this ark, beginning with verse 10, the 25th chapter, verse 10. Look at chapter 25, verse 10. We're past, we're past all the, the uh, materials of the tabernacle. And we'll get into more of a detailed study. Beginning with verse 10, we'll find uh, the ark. And we'll deal with that ark somewhat tonight, the Lord willing. But I wanted to just mention before we start reading that Scripture that there are two ways of studying, studying the tabernacle. We study it from God to man, and that's what it is here when we begin with the ark, which is inside the veil in the Holy of Holies. From God, and you progress outward till you get out to uh, the front of the court where the brazen altar is. So from God to man, or in the case that we find it later on 
after we, uh, when we start studying uh, in chapter, I believe it's chapter 35, you'll start finding that you start from man to God. That is, you start out the brazen altar and you come inward. So, those two ways you study the tabernacle. The first list of the pieces of furniture start on the inside. That's where God's presence is. Behind the veil here, we'll say, where the ark is, that's the one we're just about to study. And you go out progressively until you get out to the gate of the court. But the other way of studying it is starting out at the gate, coming by the brazen altar and the laver, and then on the inside of the tabernacle until you progress right on up to you get into God's presence. So, that's the two ways that are listed when all the pieces of furniture are listed for us. So, this means from the inside out, from God to man. God is on the inside, coming out to man. And this is the right way to study. God comes out to man. This is in keeping with what actually happens. God comes to man. Man doesn't come to God. God comes to man, first of all. It has always been God seeking man. Remember in the garden, what happened? Did Adam say, God, where are you? I've sinned and I want to get back in touch with you. I'm spiritually dead and I want to be uh, saved. I want to be revived. I want to have spiritual life. No. God came seeking Adam. And He said, Adam, where art thou? God knew where he was, but He wanted him to confess that he had gone away from God. And he says, I, I uh, was afraid and I hid myself amongst the trees of the garden. And then the Lord spoke to him and said, well, what made you afraid? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat of? And then he started blaming Eve. He says, the woman that thou gavest me. See, she always gets the blame first. And then, and then God turned to Eve and she says, the devil made me do it, right? Isn't that the way it goes? And so God starts and He starts with uh, the serpent, and then he comes back to Eve, and then he comes back to Adam in pronouncing the curse. So God gets at the root of the matter. But we always find that God is seeking man. That lost sheep that Jesus speaks of. He says He w- went out to seek that lost sheep until He finds it. Luke 15. And He does that. And uh, we know that we were lost and in sin, and God sought us out of our sins. So that's the way that God does. It was God coming down to where sinful man was and is, not man working up his way to God. Remember, there was one that tried to reach to the heavens, and he was a rebel back in the book of Genesis, Nimrod. And God said, no, that won't work. I'll confuse their tongues so they can't build this tower to heaven that they're trying to build. He came down to see what man was doing. And he saw that man was in rebellion to him. So, and then we study from from man to God as you uh, study later on after the, uh, when you get into about the 35th chapter on to the end of the book, you'll find he studied from man to God. He starts out at the gate and enters in and the brazen altar and he has to make a sacrifice and finally ends up in God's presence through the high priest when he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. So there's two ways. God coming out to man or man trying to come into God. And if man comes into God, he has to start with a brazen altar of sacrifice. He has to start at the gate. Do you have the picture there before you somewhere? The gate of the court? He has to start at the gate. 
Then he comes to that brazen altar. And then the priest, of course, has to uh, wash in that uh, brazen laver before he enters into the tabernacle. And then he comes in the tabernacle and on one side, the left-hand side, he finds a candlestick, golden candlestick. And God gives the light inside that place. And then on the right-hand side, there's a table of showbread. And then the high priest enters into that second veil. And inside there is where you have that ark that we've just been talking about. And we start from the ark coming out now to man. And uh, so that's the way we study the tabernacle. And we study it from man to God. This carries with it the thought of a man out in the desert. A picture of a man without God and without hope. Wandering around in the desert of sin. This carries with it the idea of sinful man trying to approach a holy God if he's on the outside. And he can only do so as he comes to the tabernacle dwelling place of God and goes through the right procedure. There's an altar out there, a brazen altar. There's a door. And if we studied from this idea, we would study as to what sinful man sees and how he reacts to what he sees. And if we study from this idea, we'd take man in his lost condition and bring him to God. However, we're going to study it as we begin now from the ark. Look down at verse 10. If you have Exodus 25, verse 10, we're going to study it there from the ark that's inside where God's presence is. And you'll see that on your, on your uh, that ark of the covenant. It's at the very top of your picture there. Ark of the Covenant. We're going to study it from God coming out to man. <clears throat> We've already noticed the materials of the tabernacle, and each one of these we'll discuss fuller, more fully as we go along with our comments. Now, God commanded the construction of the tabernacle. It was a revelation of divine grace and is a revelation of divine order. God is a God of order, by the way. He doesn't do just things just haphazard. God has a plan. He had a plan from the beginning. And He's had a plan all through the the Bible. And in fact, fact, you'll see that most of the books of the Bible, if not all, are written with a specific plan in view. The Gospels are that. Matthew's Gospel presents Christ as King of the Jews. Mark presents Christ as God's divine servant. Luke presents the man, Christ Jesus. The man. The Son of Man. And then we come to John's Gospel and he he presents Christ as God manifest in the flesh. Doesn't he? He starts out, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he says, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He starts with God. The man... Christ Jesus says, God manifest in the flesh. Says the Word was made flesh, verse 14, and dwelt, or verse 13, and then verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of His, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, at John chapter 1. So, God is a God of order. Nothing is done haphazard, nothing is done uh, without divine direction. And he told Moses, he says, you see to it that you make everything according to the pattern that I showed thee in the mount. The tabernacle was the dwelling place of God in Israel. Before we get into detail of 
this being the dwelling place of God. Let me give you a couple of verses uh, of Scripture. Look in Psalm, if you will, uh, chapter 80 and verse 1. It says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock. Now look at the last statement. Thou that dwellest between the cherubims shine forth. Now, the cherubims were overshadowing this ark. They were over the mercy seat. You have that? Psalm 80. Then look at Psalm 99 and verse 1. It says, The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. We're going to study that the cherubims are on the lid of this ark. The lid that covers the ark. In fact, we'll read the context of the Scripture so you can get right into it if we can get that far. We're just about to, ready to study the ark. And so let's begin reading, if you will, with verse 10. Let's read beginning with verse 10 of the 25th chapter of Exodus. Verse 10 through 16 will be the ark of the covenant and a study of it. Verse 10 through 16. Let's read. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. It's called acacia wood, by the way. And it's a very tight-grained wood, more or less incorruptible. A very long-lasting wood. It says, Two cubits and a half shall be the length of it, length thereof. And a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. A cubit was usually 18 inches, unless there were some that didn't agree with that measurement, but that would make the ark size 45 inches by 27 uh, wide, and then 27 in depth. 40 45 inches by 27 inches by 27 inches. 27 in width and 27 in depth, if you'd like that. And then we find that as we read this, let's go and read on down. Verse 10 told us the dimensions of it. It says in verse 11, And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it. And thou shalt uh, make upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. They were to remain there. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. That's the Ten Commandments. That's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant. It's the covenant of the law. Ten Commandments. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Now this happened to be the lid of the ark. It's like the word ark back here means a chest in the Hebrew word. It means a chest. And it was the dimensions we gave you. 45 inches long, 25 inches wide, 20, I mean 27 inches wide, 27 inches in depth. That's taken from the cubit. The length of there shall be a cubit and a half. So, uh, uh, two cubits and a half length, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. That's all in verse 10. But now we're down to verse... Uh, uh, 17. Thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half, 
shall be the length thereof. See, it's the same length as the length of the is the chest, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. So it was the same length to form a lid, a covering for the chest or the ark. Uh, in verse 18, thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Didn't we read in Psalm, uh, what was it? Two verses, 81 and 99 verse 1, where that God dwelt between the cherubims. So there was God's divine presence behind this veil where you have the ark, and He dwelt between the two cherubs. They say there was a, a Shekinah glory, uh, meaning that there was a bright brilliance of light between when the priest, high priest would go in there, this brilliant light. Uh, not an artificial light. You had the candlesticks out in the holy place that were uh, of a human or natural, uh, not natural light, but a, a light that man makes with candlesticks and light up the candles. But behind there, there was a divine light. It was like when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And His face did shine as the sun. <coughs> and His raiment was white as the light, the Bible says. So, this mercy seat, now these cherubims, verse 18, And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the lid for the ark. Just simplify it if we can. And make one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one toward another. So on each end of this lid of the chest, this mercy seat, these cherubims, some have figured them in various ways, but of whatever look they may have had, they faced each other, and God dwelt between them, and God's light was between them, God's presence between them. And uh, so they overshadowed the mercy seat. Let's go and read. It says in the last part of verse 20, And their faces shall look one to another toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubims be. Look at verse 21. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, so that would be the lid, and in the ark shalt, uh, thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. That's the law within. And there I will meet with thee. This is where God says He would meet with thee. And I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I give thee in commandment under the children of Israel. God will commune there. So you have a lot of information given on those verses. Verses 10 through uh, 22. That's the section we're studying. 10 through 22. Now remember that these two staves that were put in the corner through these loops on the corner were to remain there constantly. And it was these staves were used to carry the ark when they had to transport it. It had to be carried by men. Couldn't be loaded on wagons or anything. Had to be carried on by foot and hand of men. And we'll get on to that at a later time and show that there were certain things that had to be carried. 
There are other things that have staves in them to be carried. But like the boards and the sockets of silver that form the big construction part of the tabernacle, they loaded that on wagons. And they carried those things with uh, uh, oxen that were given to pull the wagons. But these other instruments were to be carried by hand. And there were three sons of, uh, of uh, Aaron, the tribe of Levi, that were chosen, three tribes, three families, that were to do that kind of work in transporting the tabernacle when it had to be transported. But there's so many things that I get really carried away because so many things I want to say about it before I get to the place I should say it. So anyway, I just uh, maybe you'll get it by the time we get through. So as we look at this ark, it's a type of Christ. It really was a chest, and we gave you the dimensions of it. A cubit in, is considered by most authorities as 18 inches. Some have said it's 22, but we won't argue the belabor the point there. And on the top of the ark, this mercy seat was there, and with cherubim hovering over it, above it. And by the way, the mercy seat was made of one piece of solid gold. One piece. Not parts put together. And on this piece of furniture, the staves were never to be removed except when it was uh, wrapped for a journey. If it were wrapped for a journey. But it was not to be removed. And you have scriptures that bear that out. And the ark was made of two materials. Acacia wood, shittim wood, or acacia wood. And this represents the humanity of Christ. And it was made of gold. It was covered with gold. And gold always speaks of deity. And each of the boards were overlaid with gold. There were boards of acacia wood, and they were overlaid with gold. God has always uh, given us these materials here in the tabernacle, the wood and the gold. And gold has always been the most precious of all metals. The Bible says, And to you who believe, He is precious. And the wood and the gold typifies the unity of deity and humanity. Uh, if it pictures the person of Christ, and it does, the wood never became gold and the gold never became wood. That's the man Christ Jesus. We say that in Jesus Christ there were two natures. A human nature and a divine nature. He was made man. The Bible speaks of the man Christ Jesus. But the Bible speaks of Christ as the Son of the living God. These were always, these two natures were always found in Jesus Christ. He was not just man, and he was not just God. So we have one who is truly man that can identify himself with us, and truly God manifest in the flesh, in the person of Christ. And you never have a division of those things in that one person. You have both God and man. He's the God-man. Remember when I was preaching on uh, some thoughts, he was man enough to go to a wedding feast, but he was God enough to turn the water into wine. He was man enough to, to be on the, the Sea of Galilee, asleep on a pillow, like in need of sleep and rest. But he was God enough when the disciples said, Carest thou not that we perish to come up and say unto the winds and the waves, Peace be still. And they said he's man enough to 
to hunger with others, but He's God enough to feed them, feed the 5,000, and that He was, of course, man enough to to weep at the grave of Lazarus, but He was God enough to say, Lazarus, come forth. And He that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot in grave clothes. And we have a whole series of things like that on the God-man. And that's what you find in the wood and in the gold. He's all of that. I want you to notice that the ark is mentioned first as far as importance is concerned. It's the first thing that we find of the (coughs) furniture of the tabernacle. And we read that in verse 10. They shall make an art of shittim wood. And in verse 11, they shall overlay it with pure gold. So it's made of wood and covered with gold. And we find that the significance of the ark is typified in Christ that we've already said, both human and divine. And because it was first, it was preeminent over all other vessels. All the other vessels that were made. Each of the other vessels pointed to some aspect of Christ or His person or His work. And throughout the New Testament, this is the divine order. First, you have His person. Second, you have His work. You have the person of Christ, then you have the work of Christ. And that's what you find all through the Scriptures. Remember when He first came and was baptized of John in Jordan? John says, Behold, before that happened, he says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He knew who He was. He knew He was Jesus. But he says, The Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Now then, the acacia wood spoke of His humanity and it was imperishable. By the way, it's found in dry places. It thrived in dry soil. Only a, only a tree in the desert of any size had long, sharp thorns. It's a tree from which they obtained Arabic gum. A tree that never rotted. you ever seen, I don't know how many of you dealt in wood very much, but have you ever seen what they call ironwood? I mean, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Don't try to cut it, because you're not going to cut it with an axe. And I don't know of a chainsaw that would penetrate it. You might find some carbide tip blades that would score it a little bit. I don't know how deep it would go. If, if any of you have ever tried it, I didn't go that far. I've got some iron wood, but it's iron. Of course, we go out in the uh, Arizona desert, you find what? Petrified forest and so on. And there's uh, all these things. That, it is in Arizona, isn't it? I didn't get it wrong. I see Emily's agreeing with me. So, when I went on a little trip, I didn't know whether it was in New Mexico or Arizona for part of the while, but anyway. Uh, to make the long story short, we find it's very hard wood. Now, the wood gave form and dimensions, and the gold gave the appearance. The form of Christ was human. I mean, He's like a man. In fact, we referred to Isaiah where it says, when we shall see Him, there's no beauty that we should desire Him. And yet we find that when He came as a man, uh, there were some things about Jesus. When the disciples saw Him after the resurrection, remember the two on the road to Emmaus, they said, they said uh, did not our heart burn within us when He opened to us the Scriptures? And then before that even, they said, never man spake like this man at other points and times in His ministry. 
And then especially that incident when I mentioned him on the Mount of Transfiguration. He went up as a man with Peter, James, and John. But while he was up there, he was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun. His raiment was white as the light. One gospel writer says so white that no fuller of earth could have whitened his garments anymore than they were. But anyway, that's, that's Christ, the gold coming out. His divine nature displayed over the form of a servant that he was. The contents of the ark was the golden pot of manna. This foreshadowed Christ as the bread of life. And this was God meeting the needs of his people. And it revealed that there was enough for every man. Remember that manna that was given in the wilderness? And God had Aaron and Moses to preserve, to keep some of it and put it in the ark. And remember when they kept it under, not under God's direction, but they kept it against God's direction just overnight. It bred worms and stank. But here it was, a golden pot of manna. I don't know how they fixed it, but God had made sure that it was preserved. And then the rod... The Aaron's rod, the rod that budded, it's mentioned of in uh, Numbers 16 and 17. And this brings us some more history. The issue is the case of Korah and it was the authority of God over uh, Korah who rebelled against God. And of course they rebelled against Jesus when He was upon this earth. And that's the issue now of men rebelling against God. It's the same issue that had then. People that were in rebellion against God. By the way, if you've heard the news very much, you've looked around the world and you see nation after nation and people after people that are rebelling against God. They have all kinds of false religions in the world. And the Bible says there's only one true God. The Bible says, I am God and there is none else. There's not ten gods or five or two or three. There's one. The Bible says there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Then you find not only the Aaron's rod that budded, but you find that uh, the tables of stone were in there. This reveals Christ, the perfect man. Jesus said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill. And we find that the Bible tells us that in Galatians 4, verse 4, that He is the one that came, uh, born of a woman, made under the law to fulfill uh, the law, and, and by the way, to receive us as adoption of sons. And of course, we have the ark was wrapped in a covering veil. This was a picture of flesh, His flesh, humanity. The badger skins were... Uh, also spoke of his humiliation later on. We find that to be true. So we find a lot of things that are given to us about this Ark of the Covenant. We might mention also that the, these two staves, not to be removed, they, re, they were a reminder that they were pilgrims upon the earth. And two staves may represent the Gospel that has two parts. The death and burial and then the resurrection. When we get to the uh, further parts of the lesson, you'll find that the pins of the court were of brass and they were driven into the ground. The pins of the fence around it, we said they were of brass and they were driven into the ground. 
Brass speaks of judgment. And of course, they were driven into the ground. Part of it was in death, our sins were judged. And in resurrection, the part that stuck out of the ground represents the resurrection of Christ. And we'll find that He was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our what justification. That He bore the judgment of our sins in His own body on the tree. The Ark of the Covenant. It's a combination of that wood and gold. And we said before, it's a picture of the union of the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. And we've already talked about what the law contained. The ark contained the law, rather. And the mercy seat, let's get to that part, the last part of this uh, reading that we read, where it says the mercy seat. If you drop down to verse uh, 17, Thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof. And it says, uh, Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. So that formed the lid. We've already mentioned that. And this picture is Christ's suffering, the mercy seat. Because uh, actually it means more than just we might read into it. I'll give you some references. Look at especially Hebrews 9 verse 5. Hebrews 9 and verse 5. And we'll read that. And then we'll get some more scriptures that will help you to understand what we're talking about. Hebrews 9 verse 5 says, And over it, that's over the, the ark that we've been studying, and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. <coughs> so these were, actually the word mercy seat means an expiatory. It was to atone. It's a place or thing, and it was a thing, was a lid. And concretely, it means an atoning victim. Mercy seat means atoning victim. And especially, it means the lid of the ark, And in the temple, it means propitiation. You have a lot of these words. Now turn to Romans chapter 3, if you will, in verse 25. Notice what it says here. It says, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. The word propitiation there means an atoning victim. It also means the lid of the ark or mercy seat. The same thing is in view. A propitiation. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it means basically the same thing. Let's get 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. In verse 2, it says, And He is the propitiation for our sins. The word means He's a mercy seat for our sins. He's an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It means atonement. He is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's one I want you to turn to. And that's Luke chapter 18, if you will. Sometimes we have misunderstood and we have not gotten a complete picture of what the publican was praying. Let's look in Luke chapter 18. Let's begin with verse 10. It says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. You have Luke 18, verse 10. 
the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I want you to follow this. He says, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now look at this, verse 13. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm afraid when we read that, we don't get the full impact of it. He was saying, God, make reconciliation for me. God, be a propitiatory sacrifice for me, a mercy sacrifice for me. He wasn't just saying, God, pity me, or God, forgive me. He's saying, you find a sacrifice. The, the Greek word means to conciliate, to atone for sin. Be propitious. Be merciful. Make reconciliation. And so he was praying for God, and he well knew, and the Jews in those days knew what it would take to approach God. Knew what it would take to have forgiveness. People in that day understood these things. So he was saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I want you to conciliate through a sacrifice, a mercy sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice, and accept me. You don't get that ordinarily, do you? We say, pray the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer there was, God, I want you to... I'm depending upon the sacrifice that you provided for my salvation. That's what that sinner's prayer was. It's a little deeper than we ordinarily think. And we teach people when they repent of their sins to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, that's fine and dandy. But do you realize what all it means? It really means when I come to the Lord, I'm, I'm saying, God, I want to accept Jesus as my sin bearer, as my substitute, as my sacrifice, as my propitiation, as my mercy seat, so that I can be accepted in the sight of God. That's really what it amounts to. Because that's the root meaning of what it amounts to. So it's not just a person coming and begging God to save them. It's a person coming and saying, God, I know you can save me, but I want you to find that which will save me. And that is a sacrifice for my sins. And conciliate me. Propitiate. Make atonement for me. And so that's what he was saying. God, be a mercy sacrifice to me who am a lawless one, a sinful one, and therefore I can be accepted in your presence. Uh, the mercy seat pictures Christ suffering at the hands of men and suffering for sinners. And by the way, this is the only meeting place between God and man. Man is the mercy seat. Remember, God says there that... I will uh, meet with you between the cherubims of the mercy seat. We've already read that, where he said that would be the meeting place that he would have. And there he would commune. There will, And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things, which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. That's where he met with Moses. That's where he meets with... That's where he met with Aaron, the, the priest. That's where he meets with sinners. And you know, the wonderful thing, and I won't have time to finish what we're on, probably, but the wonderful thing about it 
is that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent in the midst from the top to the bottom, opening up a way for you and I to go into the God's presence, into that very presence of God, where that ark was, and where that mercy seat was, and get forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ, and not have to have any intermediates between us. The priest in the Old Testament had to go between uh, the people. He's the only one that could go in there. And the high priest alone, only once a year, could go behind that veil and he would lift that veil apart and he'd go with the blood of that brazen altar of sacrifice, the blood of that victim that was sacrificed out on the brazen altar at the entrance of the... You got the picture of it. At the entrance of the gate of the court. And he would take that blood and go in and sprinkle it up on the mercy seat and make atonement for the children of Israel a year at a time. And he knew the danger of going in there uninvited or not in the proper way. And two, he was a man. And he could have had a heart attack and died in there. And so they tied, they say, some say a rope or a chain around his ankle, around his leg, so that if he happened to die in there, they couldn't go in there after him. They'd drag him out from that presence. And that's what tradition says about how that they handled that in case something did happen to him. I don't know what it, how much of it's true. Some said a rope. Some said a chain. What kind of a chain? I don't know. But anyway, it was a very sacred and most holy entrance. And it was divinely uh, commanded. And it was, uh, of course, set down that he would go in on the Day of Atonement. And of course, you read all of the sacrifice.